Amen. But we're coming from Matthew chapter 15, verses uh, 21 through 28, and we're going to talk about a pretty, uh, pretty popular story. It's Jesus' encounter with a Canaanite woman. Uh, another gospel would say she's a Syrophoenician woman. Both of those uh, uh, titles apply to her, but we're going to talk about what's significant about Matthew calling her a Canaanite woman. And there's a lot of different angles we could have taken with this passage. We could have talk and, talked about the theme of, of gender. We could have talked about the, gene of, the theme of race. And we'll touch a little bit on that part. But what I wanted to talk about, where, where I felt the Lord leading me this morning, was to talk about her faith. And what I want to do is answer the question through this sermon is, why does Jesus consider this woman's faith to be great faith? And, and how can we also have great faith? Faith that is qualified as great in Jesus' eyes. And so the main idea of our sermon this morning is that great faith is defined by its object and its endurance. Okay, great faith is defined by its object and its endurance. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that means today. So if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. Um, if you don't have your Bible with you, you can just follow along here on the screen. I'll read it and then we'll pray together and then we'll jump in. So Matthew chapter 15, verse, beginning in verse 21. It says, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she replied, for even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. And this is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me, brothers and sisters. Father, I do thank you again for your holy word. Um, I thank you for the way I feel like you blessed me in, in reading and studying this. And I pray in your mercy that you would bless us as we dive into it together. You would bless us collectively this morning. Um, Father, I just pray that you would help us to um, see ourselves in, in this Canaanite woman, and indeed, Lord, that you would help us to embody what truly is in, in, in your sight, Lord, um, great faith. Protect this, these few moments um, from any interruption of the evil one, and may your name truly be glorified. May our hearts be inspired and challenged and changed. And Jesus, I pray that you would continue even saving us. You would save us. We love and we thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer. Um, we give you the glory and the honor and the praise. Thank you all that you've done, all that you're about to do. Amen. Amen. And so um, I don't mean what I'm about to say to, to bash America or anything like that. I feel like, um, I feel like we, 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 we've done that a lot, especially as a church uh, re recently. Um, but um, I do want to speak to us because we are Americans, and as Americans, we do have a certain lens through which we see the world, right? Um, we see the world a certain way because of our context here as, as Americans, and it's really difficult to see the world outside of that, apart from that lens, or outside of that perspective. 
And that's not something that is solely American. That, that happens to us no matter where you are in the world. It's hard for you to, to, to see the world, perceive the world, engage the world outside of the context that is common to you that you were raised in. And I think where this happens for us as Christians, wherever we are in the world, um, where it happens to us in a way that could actually be to our detriment, is with the way we see the Bible and the way we see Jesus. Right? We, we look at Jesus and we look at the Bible through our very specific um, lens and, and, and cultural context. And I think we miss a lot about Jesus. Um, let's take a look at this picture right here. Um, many of you probably grew up with this picture in your home. I know my aunt, my aunt had a picture like this growing up. And this is the kind of classic blonde, uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. And um, it's very European, very, very um, uh, American-European, um, very, I mean, it's not at all what Jesus likely looked like. But it's kind of, you know, as, as American, as an as as anglicized uh, world, that's kind of how we historically perceive Jesus. Um, I know when I first became a Christian, that's what Jesus looked like in my mind. Um, and even, you know, before I became a Christian, right after I became a Christian, but a lot of us, like a lot of us, we eventually learned that Jesus didn't look like this, that he more likely looked like this, right? More likely he had more of a Middle Eastern look, um, you know, he, he, what he, he had, he was a brown skinned individual, um, clearly likely not, not blue eyed and those things, but um, here is where uh, the, my, my, my desire to make these illustrations kind of fell apart because what I wanted to do was transition from this uh, kind of image or imagining of Jesus to one that showed a, a very Middle Eastern looking and both Jewish looking Jesus. Um, a Middle Eastern looking Jesus who had all the Jewish garb to where you could tell that he was um, kind of explicitly Jewish. And here's the crazy thing. I couldn't find such a picture. I found a very European-looking depiction of Jesus in all the Jewish garb, or I found a very Middle Eastern-looking Jesus that had none of the Jewish garb. And I think um, the reason for this is because um, I suspect that people, we as a whole, we've either forgotten or we ignore that Jesus was Jewish, that Jesus was, was a Jew, and not kind of Jewish. Jesus was Jewish Jewish to the point that when people saw Jesus, they could tell from just looking at him that he was a Jew. Like, like um, the woman at the well in John uh, chapter uh, 4 verse 9. She looks at him and says, well, I could tell that you're a Jew before he opens his mouth and to interact with her. So when we read the content of chapter 15, where our passage comes from this morning, I think it's helpful that we read it against the background of this Jewish Jesus, a, a, a Jewish Jesus, not, not kind of Jewish, um, but a, a, a really Jewish Jesus. And when we look at it against this backdrop, we get a picture of how incredibly radical Jesus was. And when I say radical, I don't mean crazy or extreme. That's what usually comes to our minds. I mean radical in the more classical meaning of it, because the word radical originally meant something like of or relating to or proceeding from the root. So that when I say that Jesus was radical, he was someone who was clinging to the roots of God's good and true religion. And in his mission, he was trying to point people back to the roots 
of what God had called his people to do and how he had called them to live and exist in the world. And the reason why Jesus seemed so extreme in doing this is because of how far people had gotten from the true heart of God. And brothers and sisters, I think this is really significant for us to consider in our own context because the farther people are from following God, the, the more that following God is going to seem too extreme for them. Regardless of what side of the spectrum they're coming from, hearkening back to what Justin Gibney said last week, we can miss God by being on any far extreme of, of, of the spectrum. You can miss God by being too liberal. But believe it or not, you can also miss God by being too conservative. And what happens is folks on both sides tend to look at those who are trying to faithfully live for God and manage the complexities of, of all that is as extremists. Believe it or not, in our context right now, the person trying to soberly think about things and, and, and consider all that is complex and difficult about figuring things out and, and mesh it with their biblical perspective and view on how to serve God, you're cons you're, you are the extremist today. Well, looking back at the first few verses of chapter 15, the Pharisees and the scribes, these are the religious leaders of the day, they come to Jesus and they ask him why his disciples don't follow, why they don't follow the traditions that the elders, the, the religious leaders that came before, before them, why they don't follow their traditions by washing their hands before they ate. And just for, a sake of, for the sake of context, um, the religious leaders were not concerned with cleanliness, right? They were not afraid of catching colds and germs and things of that nature. Um, if you ever saw the way they washed their hands, it was just a little basin of water that they would pour and just rub their hands a little bit together. And what was important to them was the ritual of seeming clean. What was important to them was, was, was seeming like they truly had a, a cleanliness of life. But this is why Jesus looked at him and said, he said, you are whitewashed what? Tombs. He looked at him and said, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside you are filled with what? All matter of uncleanness. And so this idea of why, when they ask Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands? They're not concerned with anyone's well-being they're concerned with maintaining these traditions set up by men that God never instituted. And so as is common with our wise Lord and Savior, he responds to their question with a question of his own. And he says, well, let me ask you a question. Why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? You ask why my disciples are breaking your traditions for the sake of the commandments, so why are you breaking the commandments for the sake of your tradition? And he points out one commandment in specific, the commandment to honor your mother and father. He said, the commandment says to honor your mother and your father, but you tell people that if what you would have given them and what you would have done to them is already dedicated to God, in other words, is Corban, then you're no longer required to give it. Where is that in the law of God? 
Well, that's the beginning of this whole series of Jesus kind of bucking against religious traditions. And again, again, Jesus is being a radical because he is trying to point them back from their tradition to the true heart and the true law of God. And in this series of these encounters in uh, chapter 15, we come down to Jesus' interaction with this Canaanite woman from this morning's passage. And our passage begins with Jesus withdrawing to a district of Tyre, or Tyre. I, can't, I should have looked up how to say it. It sounds like Tyre, but it probably is Tyre and Sidon. Now, this is a really important part of the story for a couple of reasons. First is because this region of Tyre and Sidon was a region of people that were longtime enemies of Israel. Okay, longtime enemies of Israel. Um, as a matter of fact, one scholar, he actually noted that these cities were often condemned by the Old Testament prophets. Well, the second uh, reason why this piece of information was important, because historically, when Jesus withdrew, whenever the Bible tells us he withdrew, it was either to escape the danger of people who wanted to prematurely kill him, or it was to pray. And so what Matthew tells us is that Jesus withdraws, and likely it's to avoid the danger of these religious leaders he's just offended, but instead of withdrawing to some known, safe Jewish place, he withdraws to the region of the enemy. A place where people were openly hostile to Jews. And it seems pretty clear that within this series of addressing Jewish traditions gone wrong, he's setting the stage for addressing how these traditions have wrongly understood how God feels about non-Jewish people. It is true, brothers and sisters, that in the Old Testament, God called Jews to be pretty uncompromising in, in not doing life um, with non-Jewish people, in, in doing life differently and separately from non-Jewish groups of people. However, this was always meant to preserve the name of Yahweh and the way of life that he called them to. It was never meant to exclude anyone else from entering into covenant relationship with the Lord God, Yahweh, if they so chose to do it. There are a lot of, of commands in the Old Testament to tell the Jewish people how they were to welcome non-Jewish people when they wanted to enter into covenant faithfulness. There was no law to bar someone who wanted to enter into covenant faithfulness. But by Jesus' day, it seemed that non-Jews were being barred from covenant fellowship with God due to the traditions set up by the religious leaders. And these traditions were held above the laws of God. So, well, in this enemy region in Tyre and Sidon, Jesus quickly encounters an enemy. Matthew tells us that a Canaanite woman found him. And about this woman being a Canaanite, it's very significant that Matthew chooses to call her that because one scholar, his name is R.T. France, he puts it this way. He says, Matthew makes the racial context of the encounter explicit. Not only by describing the woman as from that area, but especially by the term Canaanite, which by this time was probably not a current ethnic term, but a part of traditional biblical vocabulary 
for the most persistent and insidious of Israel's enemies in the Old Testament period. Those whom God had driven out before his people Israel and whose idolatrous religion was a constant threat to the religious purity of the people of Yahweh. That a Canaanite of all people should receive the compassionate ministry of Israel's Messiah would be a potent symbol to Jewish readers of the universality of the gospel. Now, I don't want to prematurely give away the end of this story, but the fact that this woman is a Canaanite, an enemy of Israel, and the fact that Jesus has compassion on her the way that he does highlights the simple but incredibly profound truth that the love of Jesus is not for just anyone. The love of Jesus is not for just any people group. The love of Jesus is not for just any political party. The love of Jesus is not for just any denomination. The love of Jesus is for everyone without exception. And friends, there is absolutely no room for exclusion or preference in the kingdom of God. If there is any corner of the kingdom of heaven where everyone is not welcome through faith in Jesus, then that is not the kingdom of God. And let me put it differently by saying that part of the radical nature of Christ and of Christianity is that everyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome. If there is any part of any church, including this one, where a person is not welcome to come and drink of the living waters of grace that flow from our Lord Jesus Christ, then hear me when I say that that is not the church. That is not the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church should be and has to be the most welcoming place on the planet. It has to be. And I can say with a great deal of confidence, brothers and sisters, that this church, the church I call home, you guys do a fantastic job of this. It is probably the most welcoming church I've ever set foot in. But I want to encourage you guys to realize that just as with anything else, there's always room to grow. Don't become too relaxed. Seek to be all the more welcoming. As we continue to grow and change, continue to welcome, particularly be welcoming of the stranger. Well, this woman, this Canaanite woman who um, she doesn't get a name in the story, which I don't think makes her any less significant, but she comes to Jesus crying. And the Greek gives us the sense that she's not just crying, but that she's like ugly crying. You know the kind of crying where you see someone crying and they're trying to say something and you can't tell what they're saying, but you know that something is desperately wrong? This is the kind of crying she's doing, coming after Jesus. And what she is saying, what they're able to make out, is that she is begging Jesus to do something for her daughter who is severely oppressed by a demon. Well, here's the... Here's the wild part of the story. 
is that as much as she's crying and as, as troubled as she appears, she's begging Jesus for something, and Matthew tells us that Jesus doesn't answer her a word. Well, Jesus doesn't respond to her, but the disciples do. And the disciples come begging Jesus to get her to leave them alone. Oh, so compassionate disciples. And it's likely what they are trying to say to Jesus is just do for her what she wants so she'll get off of our backs. But then, to heighten it even more, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, no. He says, I can't do this for her because the things that I do as Messiah are only done for Jews. They're only done for the children of Israel. Mind you, I want you to keep in mind, the woman is there crying out, and Jesus is still not noticing her. He's talking to his disciples. This is wild, isn't it? Well, this woman, not to be denied, being as persistent as she is, she runs up to Jesus, she falls, in in English it says on her knees, but in the Greek it says that she falls prostrate. It's another way to say that she actually takes a a, a worshipful position. It's humbly and as, 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 as honoring as she could. She lays before Jesus and she says, Lord, please help me. And this is where... It gets real crazy. Because this time Jesus refuses, but this time he's also a little harsh. And he essentially calls the woman a dog. And he tells her that he can't take what belongs to the children, give it to the dogs. Now, before we get all offended and If you're anything like me, I I get offended at reading this account. I just want to say that I don't think that Jesus called her or referred to her in any way as a dog for the purpose of offending her. Um, I don't believe that Jesus played into the racist ideologies of the Jewish leaders and and all of those things. I don't believe Jesus was a a racist. I don't think he even cares that she's a Canaanite. I think that everything that Jesus is saying to this woman is a setup for the amazing grace that he is about to show her. I think Jesus calls this woman a dog in front of his Jewish disciples because that's likely how they saw her already. And Jesus is about to blow their minds by showing that the kingdom of heaven and Jesus' coming is for the sake of the dogs and for the sake of all the people that they've assumed are unfit for the company of God. Like this woman. But there's something that I believe God showed me as I prepared for this sermon that I think we need to address. When you and I read this, and it makes perfect sense, we get offended, we get a little unsettled, right? You read this, and the first thing that comes to your mind is, is how can you, Jesus? Right? Um, You hope that there's some other explanation for this other than Jesus just being offended and calling her a dog. Is it just me? Is it just me? No, seriously, if you you didn't feel that way, then I guess I'm the... Raise your hand if it's offensive. All right, there you go. So it's not just me. 
right? I hope that Jesus is saying something else other than what it sounds like, because I don't think I can rock with a Jesus who would talk to somebody like this. But here's the thing I want us to take note in and take note in. We might be offended. But you know who wasn't offended? This woman. She's the one that Jesus calls a dog, but she doesn't even bat an eye. I mean, her reply is so quick. The metaphor she comes up with is so quick. You would have thought she was a rapper or a poet or something. She comes up with it so quick. She says, you're right, Jesus, but even the dogs eat from the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And so I want us to ask ourselves again, why do we get offended at what Jesus says while this woman doesn't? Well, I think it's because, brothers and sisters, please, and I say this speaking to myself as well as someone who got offended by this. I think it's because as humble as we'd like to believe that we are before God, the truth is that we still feel pretty entitled. We still feel pretty entitled even before the God of the universe who holds everything in his hands and for whom no one or nothing is his superior, we still demand a certain level of respect from him. I think it's because we're we're a little bit spoiled And in that, we forget who God really is. I'm speaking to myself too, friends. This is not me jumping on on you. I think that a lot of us would more quickly get berated by our boss at work and figure out how to brush it off and keep on working for them than to hear Jesus say what he said here and still stomach him as our Lord. But what this woman had, and what I believe we really need, is a recognition of who Jesus really is, and how desperately we need him, and how little we deserve him. That's hard. But I believe that this is what was at the core of what was so great about this woman's faith. And here's the thing. When Jesus heard her reply, not her offense, not in in any of the ways that we would have probably reacted. When Jesus heard her reply, I can imagine Jesus just jumped back and was like, wow. Threw up his hands like, wow, I can't even contend. Did you see all that I threw at this woman? you see her response? You know what, woman? This is great faith. Whatever it is you need, you got it. This is great faith. I can imagine Jesus's, Jesus's excitement. I can imagine what this said to those disciples who see this dog getting anything she wants from Jesus. I don't think she's a dog, brothers and sisters. I'm using the context. Great faith. Great faith coming from an enemy of God. Brothers and sisters, if you think you are anything more on your own, than an enemy of God, than a dog in his sight, then you need to jump off your high horse. 
I'm not saying that God does not love you, but if you think somehow that you are entitled to the love of our gracious God, you've got to fix the perspective. He's good to us because he's good. Not because we're good enough for him. And friends, I want us to close with two things that made this woman's faith so great. And I want you to know that this was a hard reminder for me in preparing this sermon. This is not just, we're in this together. But it's two things that made this woman's faith great, and I pray that we can embody this as well. And the first is this, her faith was great because Jesus was the object of her faith. In other words, what I'm trying to say in a somewhat pithy way here is that her faith was great because it was placed in Jesus. It wasn't great because of how much theology she knew. It wasn't great because of how, how well-versed she was in the Bible. We've already established that she was a Canaanite. So it's highly unlikely that she knew much about the Bible or about who the Jewish Messiah was supposed to be or any of that stuff. I bet all that she knew was that there was this Jewish man in town who could heal folks and cast out demons, and that was all she needed to know. And even Jesus, brothers and sisters, says this is enough faith, that this is great faith. In John chapter 14, verse 11, Jesus says, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe in the evidence of the works themselves. In other words, brothers and sisters, let me put it to you this way. Just enough faith in Jesus is great faith. Put it another way. Any faith in Jesus is great faith. One time, they were, uh, 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 the, the, the prince of preachers himself, Mr. Charles Spurgeon, he had finished preaching, you know, one of his great oratory sermons. And, and this man was known for preaching, his voice carrying for, for yards and, and, and tons of people coming and being saved and accepting the Lord Jesus Christ. And afterwards, I love Charles Spurgeon so much. They asked him one time, how, do he, how does he know he's smoking too many cigars? He says, I'm smoking two at once. But um, after preaching one time, someone ran up to him and said, and said, Dr. Spurgeon, Mrs. Spurgeon, how much faith is needed to be saved? He said, any faith. Because any faith in the right object is enough faith. And enough faith, brothers and sisters, is great faith. It's great faith. Well, the second thing is this. Her faith was great because her faith was persistent. I think, brothers and sisters, in the church, um, we've worked really hard to make faith about more than just believing in Jesus. Um, take prayer, for example. Think about the many, many different books and resources out there about how to pray, the different kinds of prayer, the different kind of postures of prayer. And I'm not saying that the content of these books are unhelpful. There's some good stuff out there. What I am saying, however, is that prayer in and of itself is an act of great faith without any qualifiers. Persisting in prayer, continually coming before God and letting your request be made known to him with confession and thanksgiving in and of itself is a declaration that you believe in the God who can act on your behalf and who can do for you what you are not capable of doing for yourself. 
A couple of weeks ago, I said in a sermon that prayer and scripture is undefeated. And I quickly realized after saying that, that what I meant may have been lost in delivery. And what I meant in saying that, brothers and sisters, is that every move of God in the world, in the church, or in an individual's life is predicated on prayer. Put differently, I can't say that God will always move the way we want to. As a matter of fact, I can say that God will not always move and act the way we want him to. However, without persisting in prayer, without remaining faithful in prayer, I bet that we will not experience him move in the ways that we need him to. And I bet even further that we will miss him when he does, in fact, move the way we need him to. Prayer is a 